As we look around today, not only nationally but internationally, we often realize that Satan is very much at obvious work. And we as believers ought not be deterred by that, but oftentimes we do have uh, a fear that can come. Uh, now, it's, we need to have a respect for what Satan does, but we need to realize that we are on the vic victory side. But often we find a negative perspective and a, we react. I think we fail to remember that history has been uh, full of these kinds of eras. And uh, if you go back and really look at America during the time of the Revolutionary War, it's amazing we're here today. Uh, God is able to work, and the great revivals made a difference. But fear can really grip us. Uh, frustration, reaction. A little boy had a part in a school play that read, It is I, be not afraid. He came out on the stage and said, It's me, and I'm scared. <laughs> and I'm afraid that's a, oftentimes we know it is I, the Lord, be not afraid, but it's me, and I'm scared. But if we don't watch out, a hopelessness can set in. A negative perspective can be in our lives as believers. We know the truth. We look at the future. We have the clear prophecies of what is going to come and what has occurred. And yet, instead of realizing the tremendous potential of what God has called us to do, we find ourselves often with hopelessness. And today, keeping with our rekindling theme, rekindling victorious prayer. And to understand that the only way to overcome a wrong perspective on the future is to understand what God has promised us. Some years ago, a hydroelectric plant was to be built across a valley in New England. The people in the small town in the valley were to be relocated because the town itself would be submerged when the dam was finished. During the time between the decision to build uh, the dam and when it was finished, uh, the buildings in that town, which were previously kept up very nicely, it was a cute little town, fell into disrepair. Instead of it being a pretty little town, it became an eyesore. Once you're hopeless, things fall apart. And I really do believe that among evangelical believers in America, there's far too much hopelessness, and there's too much disrepair going on. Turn with me, please, to Mark chapter 11. Very wonderful passage that God has used in my heart many times to uh, just rekindle that great hope that we have in Him and what God wants to do through us. And uh, it's a wonderful passage. We need to remember that days have always been difficult. Uh, and we need to remind ourselves of God's promises. Uh, you've heard of John Hyde. We call him Praying Hyde. And uh, he grew up in Illinois in a pastor's home. He went to seminary. Then he committed himself to overseas evangelism. And following his gradu graduation, he went to southern India. His itinerant to ministry took him to village after village. He was very sacrificial. But he just did not see any results. He had a few converts and he felt so empty. Then he read the truth in Isaiah 62, verses 6 and 7. I have set a watchman upon the walls, O Jerusalem, which shall never hold their peace day nor night. Ye that may make mention of the Lord, keep not silence, and give him no rest, speaking of God, 
till he established, till he make Jerusalem of praise in the earth. And he took these words literally. In fact, it really does parallel the passage that we're going to look at. And you know the story. In 1908, he began to pray and believe God for one soul to be one every day. And by December 31st, he had over 400 converts. The next year, he he uh, prayed for two converts per day, and his prayer was again answered. He went to four. It's just amazing. In fact, that was one of the sparks of the Kessian Hills revival, and southern India became a Christian part of India through victorious prayer. Now, we're looking at a very special passage in the life of Jesus Christ. In chapter 11, you have what we call the triumphal entry. This begins his presentation to Israel and then his rejection that would uh, culminate with the cross in just a few days. And it was a very uh, sober time as obviously the disciples were facing as they were realizing what was going to happen in the next couple of days, they would be facing hopelessness in, on steroids. And, and so here we find a promise from the Lord that would be part of what would enable them, once He had died and was risen from the grave and then ascended, they would remember this great promise and they saw the fulfillment of this great promise. And so you have in uh, starting in verse 11, the, uh, you have the triumphal, or I'm sorry, in the first part of the uh, chapter you have the triumphal entry. And then uh, he uh, goes uh, to Bethany, stays there, and Bethany is on the east side of the Mount of Olives. And he had come from Bethany on that triumphal Sunday and had come down to, on the west slope and into uh, the city of Jerusalem through the Golden Gate, we call it the Eastern Gate, uh, the gate where the temple is. And then on the next day, verse 12, we read, And on the morrow, when they were come from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree afar off, having leaves, he came, if haply he might find anything thereon. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for the time of figs was not yet. And Jesus answered and said unto it, No man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. And the disciples heard it. Now we want to see here an illustration of the victory that we can have over false religion, over the darkness of any day. Today the major religion of America is secularism, it's humanism, the worship of man as God. And so the false message here of the fig tree was that when foliage would appear, figs would appear. Uh, figs appeared at the time that leaves appeared. So if a tree had figs, I mean had leaves, it had figs. I mean it was just the pronouncement that it had uh, fruit. And when Jesus came by, this was about a month plus before figs the fig trees would blossom and have their leaves and fruit at the same time. And here on the protected slope of the Mount of Olives was a fig tree that was boasting of its uniqueness, boasting of its, uh, uh, of its splendor. It had leaves. It was uh, very special, very much like Israel. They were the special nation. 
And yet, when the disciples came, it boasted of fruit, but there was none. That was the point. And uh, Matthew 24, 32 tells us about the fig tree. Now, learn a par- parable of the fig tree. When his branch is yet tender and putteth forth leaves, ye know that sunder is, uh, summer is nigh. And, uh, and so, uh, this is exactly what they expected to happen. In fact, in Hosea 9.10, I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your fathers as the first ripe or the first root in the fig tree at her first time. And, uh, and so the fig tree was a picture of Israel, but a, but a nation boasting of its uniqueness and its relationship to God, but it had no fruit. It was powerless. It was false religion. And so that's really the false message of religion. We have the answer, but there is no answer. Uh, Jude verse 12 says, these are spots in your feast, speaking of false religion of charity, when they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear. Clouds they are without water, carried about of winds. Trees whose fruit withereth without fruit, twice dead. And so false religion, and here it was Judaism, that was a corruption of Old Testament Christianity. False religion boasts that it alone has the truth, it, but it's absolutely barren of spiritual fruit. The great commentator Hebert said he condemned it as a vivid illustration of a fair profession without performance. And so what we're dealing with here, folks, is the power to pray over the false thinking that captures the world in which we live. And this promise is an amazing promise. And so we find the, uh, the Lord here curses this fig tree and then gives a promise a little later that we'll look at here that helps us understand the great privilege that we have. Now let me just say this, that false religion can come into Bible-believing churches. You can become religious even if you're saved by trying to live your Christian life through your own works and having a false, uh, you, you were truly saved, but the profession of godliness is not a reality. Uh, As one writer said, if God called His Holy Spirit out of the world, about 95% of what we are doing would go on and we would brag about it. (laughs) And unfortunately, that is true. There is a lot of just institutionalism in our day. Now let's look here at the demonstration of the victory that is going to be mentioned here, starting with verse uh, 15. This was going to be an illustration of what God was going to do if these disciples would pray by faith. Verse 15, and they they come to Jerusalem and Jesus went into the temple. Now I want you to see this. I mean, he's under great threat, but he walks into the temple and began to cast out them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seat seats of them that sold doves, and would not suffer that any man should carry any vessel through the temple. And he taught, saying unto them, Is it not written, My house shall be called of all nations the house of prayer? But ye have made it a den of thieves. And the scribes and the chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him, for they feared him, 
because all the people was astonished at his doctrine. And then when he was come, he went back out of the city. So I want you to get the picture here. This tree that represented false profession of religion, saying it had fruit but did not have it, that it was somehow favored, Judaism was boasting that it was the unique religion, but it has nothing if they were trusting in their own works and their religion. As he curses it, and then he goes immediately down into the temple and drives out the money changers from the court of the Gentiles. And this is a demonstration of the illustration, as I just mentioned, of the fig tree. I won't read all of it in Malachi 3, though, verse 1. You have uh, the fact that there's going to be a time in which there is going to be uh, a refiner's fire and a dealing with the temple. Now, what was going on? In the court of the Gentiles, which was the place that there was to be prayer and there was to be evangelism? This was the place that all of the nations were to come and find out about the true God of Israel, Jehovah God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. It was God's plan for the nation of Israel to propagate the truth throughout the world. And one of the main means was going to be this court of the Gentiles where there would be the power of prayer and the reality of bringing people into faith of Jehovah. By the way, people were at different times when God was mightily working in Israel. But what was going on right now, there were money changers. And so you had animals in there being sold uh, for sacrifices, but you had, to, you had to change the Roman money into a form of money that was similar to shekels, and they had a 12% exchange rate. And... Uh, and it was just a place of commerce. It was a joke. It had all the stench of false religion. It was one of the biggest money-making uh, schemes around. Now, can you imagine? This is the second time Christ did it. He did it at the beginning of his ministry, and he did it at the end of his ministry. Here you have soldiers that had the power of the Roman government, the soldiers of the Sanhedrin standing around, you had all of the different priests and Levites there. You had all of these people. And one man overturns those tables. And the fire of God's wrath was in his eyes. And as he went through, no man would stop him because they could sense the power of God upon him. Now you say, well, he was God. Yes, he was. But I'm telling you, he operated in his humanity. He was depending on the power of God just like we do. And he confronted straight out that false uh, religion and its corruption and its deception. And uh, there was a, though they wanted to kill him, they feared him. And, uh, and then he goes back, leaves the temple and goes back to Bethany. What was he doing? Well, there are several different, this was obviously a fulfillment of prophecy, but he was letting those disciples see that what he was doing with the fig tree was what they would do spiritually and by overturning the power of corrupt religion. That God's people have that great privilege. 
And so we've got to be very careful ourselves that we are genuinely pure in our walk with God. I can't help but think of Charles Spurgeon uh, just a few years before his death at American Lecture uh, Bureau wanted to get him to come and do 50 uh, lectures and they give him a thousand per night. That was really huge back then. He'd get $50,000 for coming. And uh, he declined promptly. And he said, I would uh, rather make, uh, rather than $50,000 in 50 days, I'll do better. I'll stay in London and try to save 50 souls. <laughs> he wouldn't let the corruption of man's thinking stop him. And I'll tell you, the reason we don't pray the victorious prayer that uh, God's going to give us here, Jesus Christ is, um, is so often some of that's in us. And we need to identify that. So he clarifies here the need for the cleansing. This, uh, this uh, he says in verse uh, 17, My house shall be called of all nations the house of prayer, but ye have made it the day of thieves. This is the place where evangelism was to occur. And I'll tell you, anything that stops us from being a testimony and proclaiming the truth really concerns God. This is a great text, by the way, for a soul-winning message. We see here in living color what God thinks about living for self rather than being the testimony to get the gospel out. It's sobering. You see the heart of the Savior. And uh, Isaiah 56, 7 said, Even them will I bring to my holy mountain, make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices shall be accepted upon my, upon mine altar, for mine house shall be called an house of prayer for all weeks. For all people, excuse me. Five weeks later in that very place, 55,000 people would be saved. And it was a foreshadowing of God's great working. And so religion uh, keeps people away from the truth, and that's why a true church needs to have victory in uh, living out the truth. All right, quickly let's move to the next point. The obligation here that we have then to have victory. Verse 20, and in the morning, this is now the next day, this is two days after the triumphal entry, and in the morning as they pass by, they're coming from Bethany, coming over the hill, now going down the west slope of the Mount of Olives, they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter calling to remembrance saith unto him, Master, behold, the fig tree which thou cursedest is withered away. It's very interesting his answer. Now, let me stop here. God is the creator. This is the only time something dies because of what Jesus said. You know, he loves his creation. And uh, for this to be done was a very clear uh, illustration that he wanted his disciples. I mean, they were shocked. I mean, it was, it was a flourishing tree one day. It totally withered and dried up from the roots the next day. And so he very clearly had allowed all this progression to come so that he could give this perspective. Verse 23, 22. And Jesus answering said unto them, Have faith in God. For verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, 
but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Therefore I say unto you, what things soever ye desire, when ye pray, believe that ye receive them, and ye shall have them. Hallelujah. Now do you get the context here? We fear. We get frustrated. We get upset. We don't like what we're seeing happening around us. And the Lord could have easily said the, uh, to these disciples, you're fearing all of the Jewish leadership and the Roman government and you're reacting and you're wanting to have a human overthrow of all of this. But you have greater power than that and that's what he's saying here. And, uh, and so, uh, first of all, Christ had power over the fig tree. I've already read that. And uh, let me just say that the God of heaven is able to do anything. He is, he is uh, the firstborn of every creature, Colossians 1.15. Uh, For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and before him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Now, my friends, we serve the all-powerful Creator God, and we as the church, and it's referred to here, are to so live that He has the preeminence and that His power can be seen in the midst of a dark, satanically controlled culture. Listen, it was bad then, it's bad now, but Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we have a great, great, great commission from Him. And so Christ can exercise that power through us. Uh, it, it is important for us to understand that He's able to do anything. He will act, like in Acts 4.31, after they prayed, the place was shaken, and where they were assembled together, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. And they spake the Word of God with boldness, and the very priests that saw what happened there in the temple were getting saved just a few weeks later. That's what God can do. And we need to rest in the Lord. He said, have faith in God. The present imperative have here in this verse demands that they must go on having such a faith. Faith without an article stressed the quality of the faith as centered in God. His reply was a gentle rebuke to their lack of faith in the power of his word. The withered fig tree gave them a vivid demonstration of its power. And so uh, the Lord wanted them to realize that he was able to work through, and, through them. And it, as we're going to see in verse 24, as I read, it is applied in prayer. And so we need to have full confidence that victory will occur. Well, finally, the conditions for the victory. Uh, we read in verse 23, we're to have faith in God, for verily I say unto you, truly, that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. He was probably here referring to the Mount of Olives as uh, he was speaking to these disciples. 
he was using this as an illustration of a far greater mountain to these disciples, and that was the false religion of Judaism and the great power that they had and the Roman government, it looked like they, they had no hope. And I'm telling you, when Christ hung on the cross and he was put in the grave, these men were hopeless. But he wanted them to know that the power that he was going to give them would be so great that this mountain of Judaism could be cast into the sea. And it was very easy for them to understand this illustration because if you go to the top of the Mount of Olives, you look to the west and there is Jerusalem. You have the Valley of Kidron and then you see the old city. But if you look to the east, it goes down 3,000 feet fast into a desert and then you see 1,000 feet below sea level, the Dead Sea. You can see it right there from the Mount of Olives. So they knew exactly what he meant. This mountain could then be cast into the sea. He wasn't giving this as a literal aspect. God can do anything, of course. But the point was, after he had cleansed the temple, and they had seen his power, if you will confront that which I tell you to confront, just like this mountain would be cast into the sea as a great miracle God will give you greater power so that you can see false religion overcome. The statement of, of the Lord is a picture of the utter impossibility with men. There's nobody here that can pick up a mountain and throw it into the sea, right? It's impossible. But with God, there's nothing impossible. And so if we will have faith in the power of God, as a John Hyde walked into India with its false religion, and he was willing to pray and pray this kind of prayer, God transformed the southern end of India. Even to this day, it's amazing. Not easy, but God could do it. And that's what God wants us to understand. We can wring our hands and be all frustrated with what we see around us. My friends, God is ready to overcome the blindness of this world so that people can be saved. And he's wanting people to have faith in God and to trust Him so that the mountain of false belief can be cast away and God can begin to work. And so the conditioning we need to have is, first of all, genuine faith in the Word of God. Here He says this. Remember how He rebuked them before that they didn't believe Him? Folks, it's our unbelief. Looking at human circumstances, if Jesus says it, it is so. And, um, and so we are to make it a practice here, uh, down in verse 24, it's speaking of the present tense, we are to make a practice of praying like this, that God can do anything to overcome the resistance to Bible Christianity if we will pray, intercede, we have the power and authority of heaven uh, behind us in that matter. And uh, then we need to have spiritual victory over doubt. Going back to verse 23, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, right in the middle of the verse there, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. There can't be any conflict between his, uh, uh, his assertion and our inner attitude. Doubt 
as uh, James chapter 1, let not that man think that he will receive anything of the Lord. In fact, the way this is stated, I want you to notice there at the ver end of verse 23, uh, you believe that it's going to come to pass. You'll have whatsoever you saith. Verse 24, whatsoever thing you desire when you pray, believe that ye receive. It has the idea, you receive it before you see it. In other words, it should be that kind of faith. Since God said, is God, has God promised that He can overcome the blinding power of the God of this world? Yes, He has. And we all have all authority as the commission was given. And folks, the thing that stops us from seeing God work is our doubting or the very wrong thinking that comes into our minds of the wrong priorities. And so it should be... Uh, we should have that sense, as Hebert again says, receive is the aorist tense, did receive, and stresses that faith accepts that the petition has already been granted. Knowing that the petition is in God's will, faith accepts the answer as granted, although the actual bestowal is future, ye shall have them. Folks, if we could learn to pray when we know we're in God's will, and these things are God's will, if we can pray to, through to confidence, it changes everything. We don't enter in because of unbelief. But God met this promise. We need to not only believe the Word of God, but we need to have no doubt uh, about uh, what's happening, and we need to uh, ask the Spirit of God to help us. And we need to have assurance that God will work. And then we need to ask the Lord to give us a strong desire to accomplish His desire. Verse 24, Therefore I say unto you, what things soever ye desire, when ye pray, believe that ye receive them, and ye shall have them. In this context, what's the desire? That the mountain would be removed. That what Jesus was so concerned about when He cleansed the temple would occur. And I want to tell you again, folks, it wasn't but days later that God began to, to move that mountain. 3,000 saved at Pentecost. 5,000 more saved a few days later in the temple after the lame man uh, was healed. And then multiplied people were being saved. And all throughout the uh, city of Jerusalem, it was being shaken by the power of the gospel. And many of the Sanhedrin came to know Christ as Savior. That's what God can do. Broke the power of Satan's hold upon that area. That's something those disciples couldn't even dream about. But God did it because they prayed and they believed. They prayed Mark 11, 23, and 24 in the upper room. I am positive. Because it was just a few days before that they had heard that. Uh, a few weeks before, excuse me. And, uh, and that was burning upon their soul. And one more final thing here. We need to have a genuine clearing of sin. You notice, I used to always uh, think this was interesting how this was tied directly to this. Verse 25, And when you stand praying, forgive, if you have aught against any, that your Father also which is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. For if you do not forgive, neither will your Father which is in heaven forgive your trespasses. So this has the idea of wrong attitudes, any kind of sinful issues, especially in relationship problems, that cripples believers from having a full uh, confidence in God.
because they're defeated in their own life. Let me just say, folks, personal sin defeat will lead to relationship defeat. So it really covers the whole ground. You show me a man or woman that's got some impurities in their life, they very easily can get bitter with somebody else. Bitterness and relationship problems come several steps down uh, from issues that people have in their life. And so this is a present imperative. It should be that we have a standing, forgiving attitude. And if our hearts are truly right with God, we can see God work. A man named John Oglethorpe was talking to John Wesley and made the comment, I never forgive, Mr. Wesley wisely replied, then, sir, I hope that you never sin. It is, it is a way for us to understand the of our heart. And so when we are right with God and we're believing God's Word and we're no longer hopeless and we believe that God can work, folks, churches like this, families like yours can get together and pray for the mountain to be removed. Do you think the, the uh, mountain of humanism today could be challenged in America? Oh, it's got too big a grip, right? It's got a big grip. Decades of training in the institutions of our day and all the reinforcement through entertainment and everything else. But my friends, God can show up and when God shows up, all of a sudden, humanism and secularism doesn't seem to make as much sense. Now, I'm, maybe I have too innocent of a perspective on this or naive, but I believe God's wanting us to believe that a mountain can be removed. Now, did all of Jerusalem get saved? No. Was Israel saved as a nation at that point? No. But the beginning of the greatest work uh, for the kingdom of God started at that point. And uh, we're not talking about saving our nation, though I would love to do that. But friends, the mountain of satanic opposition to Christ can be prayed away. And God can open eyes and God can work. Have faith in God. Let me end with a statement from C.H. Spurgeon. Prayer without faith. What sort of prayer is it? It is the prayer of a man who does not believe in God. If we cannot believe that God can do this, then we don't believe God. Oh, may God's people rise in a rekindled way to victorious prayer that comes from a genuine faith in their God. Let's bow for prayer.